Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in chapter 8 of the Gospel of Luke, where we discuss the dangers of bad doctrine in the modern church being equipped to stand for truth. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our Journey in the Word. You cannot willfully disregard biblical mandates of Scripture and then claim God is sending revival. It doesn't work. Second, his approach is based on things other than the teaching of God's Word. Those who lived through the Jesus movement of the 60s and the 70s will tell you that while music and fellowship and other things were an awesome part of what God was doing and what was happening in the midst of that revival that took place, the simple teaching of God's Word what was the predominant thing that was taking place in almost every sector of Christianity, and the hippies were being transformed by it. Men like Pastor Chuck Smith stood on the beaches and taught the Bible verse by verse to the hippies and all who had listened, and mass salvations began to happen. <laughs> you know, I was just sharing as as Chris was playing a, a, an old Maranatha tune in there, you know, a lot of people don't know, but some of those old choruses that we sing today, you know, came out of the, the Jesus movement and they're connected to Calvary Chapel, in fact. Some of them were, came right out of there. And one of the reasons they came out of there was because, of course, hippies came in with all their instruments and their, their guitars and everything. And Pastor Chuck wanted to reinforce the message of scripture. And so he said, well, why don't you take these songs and put them, you know, these passages and put them to scripture? And so you have all these choruses that we sing today, not, not some of the modern stuff, some of the stuff that dates back that I remember back, you know, in Custer's day, but no, I'm kidding. But back in the seventies and the eighties, when I first came to Christ, you know, that we were singing, but they came because they were based on scripture and they literally were scripture that we were singing and we were doing it to memorize it. So it came based on scripture. This revival, it was nothing but about the scripture being taught. You know, there were programs like the lay witness mission program that began springing up. I used to be a part of that in the early days of my salvation where teams of believers would go into churches that were dead and dying and, and they taught and they preached God's word and they gave witness from their own lives of what Christ had done. And, and churches were revived. Dead churches were revived. The Jesus movement was truly a revival that was born out of and established upon God's word, not on things other than that. All true revivals, I'll say this again, all true revivals are born out of and established upon God's word and not on other things, regardless of how spiritually edifying those other things might seem to be. But a close and honest examination reveals that this is not the case with what's happening with this guy and his supposed revivals that are taking place, nor has it been the case with many supposed revivals that have claimed to be taking place in recent years. In fact, instead of the Word of God being preeminent in these events, it's being minimized and replaced by other things. I believe that we're a people who are living in a day very much like the days that God spoke of through the prophet Amos. Here's what Amos 8, verses 11, 12 says. See if this doesn't resonate. Amos 8, verse 11 and 12. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. 
there is no greater famine than the spiritual famine that comes from an absence of God's word. There's no greater famine. And the absence of God's word never leads to an awakening and revival never leads to it. It leads to nothing more than a desperate state of starvation where, where people try to fill their spiritual void with all sorts of junk that excites the flesh, but never satisfies or truly sustains or gives birth to real spiritual life. That's just the truth. By the way, I have to tell you, a former student of mine who's an assistant pastor these days in a church down near Baltimore, when I was out at Scotland school, he was, boy, I hope he's listening to this. He was, he was a terror. The dude was a terror. That's just the truth. He almost scared me out of the job. He's just so tough. But he came to Christ and his life was transformed. And today he's an assistant pastor. It's interesting. I was on Facebook this morning and just kind of scrolling through. And he says, you know, the Lord's been speaking this verse to me. This is the state of our nation today. This is the state of the church today. This is the spiritual condition today. He said, it's Amos 8, 11, and 12. I wrote him and I said, brother, I think the Holy Spirit's trying to say something because that's in my message today. So third, this guy's theology is broken. He is a NAR proponent and a product of Bethel Church. He's seeking to bring about revival as a part of the seven mountain mandate, seeking to invade and occupy the religious mountains to set the stage for cultural transformation that, so that Jesus can return. The true revival is never born out of false and wrong theology. And folks, that's what we're dealing with here. I mean, that's the bottom line. That's what we're dealing with here. False and wrong theology that misapplies statements such as the one we now find ourselves looking at here in Luke. Yes, Jesus did go through every city and village preaching and bringing glad tidings of the kingdom of God. But it wasn't a message of the establishment of an earthly kingdom. It was instead a message of the establishment of God's kingdom in the hearts of men and women who would receive Jesus and his message of hope and grace. This whole seven mountain mandate and spiritual teachings like it are nothing more than broken and polluted cisterns that far too many Christians are drinking from. And it's not only bad theology, it is damaging theology. As one author sums it up, he said this, the theology associated with the seven mountain mandate is dangerous and it sheds a terribly negative light on Christians everywhere. The seven mountain teaching puts a tremendous burden on believers to perform, make progress in their relative spheres of influence and set the stage for Jesus' return to earth, all without a definite endpoint. Little emphasis is placed on the gospel message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The movement is more about staking claims and taking control. The Seven Mountain Mandate is a movement led by false prophets, and it should be avoided and exposed wherever Bible-believing Christians encounter it. Don't be snookered by this. Don't be snookered by this kinds of stuff. Should you be involved in things in your community as, as Christians? Well, as the Lord leads you. Absolutely. But at the same time, ask yourself, why am I here? You know, why am I here? And I'm going to talk a little bit about that because this gets to the second point. You know, this dealt with the, 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 the changed world. You know, Jesus didn't come to change the world. He came to change the hearts of men and women by calling them to repentance. And that's the key here. That gets back to that point of, was his ministry a ministry of calling men out of sinful behaviors? No, it really wasn't. Not directly. Not directly. Now, why do I say that? Because human sinful behavior was not his focus. This sinful heart of man was his focus. It wasn't that Jesus wasn't concerned with sinful behavior. He most certainly was. 
But he knew that sinful behavior was nothing more than a symptom of the greater heart issue, which, if addressed, would ultimately lead to different behavior. By revealing the good news of the gospel to all who would listen, he knew that as men and women gave themselves over to him and to what he came to do for them, that their hearts would be changed and their behaviors would then follow. You see, the Pharisees, they approached it from the opposite perspective, focusing on behaviors and the belief that if they could just get people to do the right things, then it would change their hearts. But they and their form of religion are proof that that approach doesn't work, right? It didn't even work for them, even with their own behaviors. You know, they conformed outwardly righteous to to the behaviors. They got their behaviors in line. But Jesus was quick to point out to them that their hearts had not changed. And that was the bigger problem, that their outward behaviors were not genuine. They were masking and covering over a greater corruption that still existed within them. It was the whole point he was making when he said to to them in Matthew 23, verses 27 through 28. Matthew 23, verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, Jesus looked past the outward behaviors, as righteous as they were with the Pharisees, and got to the greater issue, and that was the heart. He said the heart, that's long been God's focus, even when men lived under the law, a law that they thought that if they just kept it, it would make them righteous in the sight of God, but it was always a law that was designed to reveal the corruptness of their own hearts, which they could not change. You can't change your own heart. You can't change your behavior, but you can't change your heart. And ultimately, your heart will dictate what's really happening in your life. This was something that was deeper, and God knew that, that this is something that's much deeper. It's a corruptness that's much deeper than the behaviors. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 6 through 12, God speaks, I think, to this very issue. In Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 6 through 12, it tells us this. Furthermore, he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary? Now turn again, you will see a greater abomination. So he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig into this wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So I went in and saw, and there every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. And there stood before them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel, and in their midst stood Jehaznai, the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? every man in the room of his idols, for they say the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. It's a word picture. It's a word picture of the heart. The door is to the heart. And to look in it and say, it doesn't matter. Yeah, the outward behaviors are bad. You want to see something worse? Look at the corruptness from which it's it's coming from. Jesus took it further with the Pharisees by saying, look at this. Your outward behaviors don't look corrupt, but the corruptness of your heart is still there. And that's an issue. 
I also believe it's the reason why there will be a thousand-year kingdom on this earth before the new kingdom in heaven are established. You know, people always ask me, well, what's the purpose? You know, he comes and he deals with it. Jesus comes back, he deals with Antichrist and his followers, and he establishes this thousand-year reign, and then they get out and there's this big rebellion, and, and then he creates a new heaven and earth. Why didn't he just go to that right away? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that, but I think this is one of the reasons. Think about this. Men are going to live under the righteous reign of Jesus Christ. He will physically be present on this earth, walking in righteousness. And, 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 uh, and this planet will be brought into submission to him, lives being in conformity to righteousness by choice or by force, the scriptures tell us. And yet at the end of that thousand years, there will be a rebellion by many who were born into this world during this period of time. Now, some believe that some of those who survived the tribulation or unbelievers uh, will move into the tri- into this millennial kingdom. I am not of that bent. I believe that there is a seeding out that takes place, that all those who begin that thousand years are people who have placed their faith in Christ who have physically survived the tribulation. Now, we'll be coming back too, but we'll be in our transformed bodies. We'll be in a completely different state. But there will be people who survived the tribulation who will go into it, who had become believers. But we know from the scriptures that they will be able to reproduce. We won't be doing that in the new body, but they will be. There will be a repopulation that will be taking place. There will be generations born that will be born into a world ruled and reigned in by Jesus Christ, will be in conformity to Jesus Christ in terms of the righteous behaviors that they conduct, but whose hearts have to be given over to him. And we know from that rebellion that not all hearts will be given over to him. They can be there. And as you look at that, this becomes proof that without a heart change, which can only happen as we give our hearts to Christ, the sin issue is not resolved. It's not truly resolved. They will be living proof that it's not about behavior, but it's about the heart. I believe it's one final lesson. It's the period on the end of the sentence of redemption that makes the case that this has never been about your behaviors. This has been about your heart. Because when I have your heart, then your behaviors will be genuine and they will begin to follow as they should. The heart has always been God's focus. And that's what Jesus came. And that's what Jesus focused on. He knew and he was revealing that while men tried to change behavior, the heart was what really needed to be changed because it was where sin truly resides and emanates from. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 15, verses 19 through 20, Matthew 15, verse 19, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murderers, uh, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Of course, he's dealing with the Pharisees on an issue over hand washing, but his point is very clear. All those behaviors you're so concerned with, those behaviors emanate from the heart. Behaviors will never be adequately addressed without the heart first being changed. And so while Jesus didn't ignore or minimize sinful behavior, he did go after that which could only ultimately change sinful behavior, the heart of fallen men and women. And it is the preaching of the gospel and the good news of the kingdom, which was found in him alone, which is what ultimately provides the cure for the sinful heart. You know, I I placed my faith in Jesus Christ some 45 years ago, I guess it is now, maybe a little longer. And when I look back and I realize this, and I've often said this, I am not the guy I once was. I'm not where I should be yet, but I'm certainly not the guy I once was. 
But who I have become has not been the result of changed behavior. Changed behavior has simply been the result of who I've become. May I say that to you again? Who I've become is not the result of changed behavior, but changed behavior is the result of who I have become. And who I have become has been the result of what Jesus Christ has done in me when I received him and received the good news of the gospel, which is revealed in him. As I received the good news of the gospel, he birthed the kingdom of God in my heart and in my thinking. He made the prophecies of Ezekiel chapter 36 and, and Jeremiah chapter 31 a reality in my life. Prophecies spoken of clearly to Israel, but prophecies nonetheless that are fulfilled in those of us who through faith in Jesus Christ have entered into the new covenant which God is talking about in those passages. Ezekiel 36 verses 25 through 27. Ezekiel 36, verse 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. Oh, praise God for that. And put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Do you see the order? I'll change your heart, then you're going to do but I got to change your heart. Then you're going to do. And, and Jeremiah 31 verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people written on the hearts. It is the changed heart, a heart of flesh, not stone upon which God has now written his statutes in my life, which has ultimately changed me. And which is, as more and more of a result, has more and more changed my sinful behaviors. I'd like to tell you I'm there, but I'm not. But I know this. I know he's written it there. And I know that more and more as I yield to him and to the changed heart he's brought within me, because my desire with that changed heart is to live differently now. Not to conform, but to live differently because of the changed heart. Not because I have to, but because I want to because I'm not who I once was. But the key has been my heart. The key is your heart. The key to this fallen world is their hearts. And that's all that will transform. And we can't transform the hearts of men, but we can lead them to the one who will transform them. And Jesus was doing that, and he was modeling that for us. He was preaching this. This is what Jesus preached, and it was a message that was being preached even before he arrived. I mean, think about this. It was the very message that was being proclaimed by the angels to the shepherds on the night on which Jesus was born. Then the angel said to him, Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, then the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. It's born to you. This is the message of the gospel. There's born a Savior who can give you good tidings of joy because of what he will do within you, what he came to do for you. It's the same message that Jesus preached during his ministry on the earth, and, and it's clearly stated here in our passage, and it is the same message that he has commissioned to us as his ambassadors to preach as well. Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, Jesus said, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You will note 
that Jesus did not say, go into all the world and take dominion of the mountains of society. Nor did he say, go into all the world and rebuke the people for every sinful behavior that they're engaging in. He simply said, go into all the world and preach the gospel because it is the simple message of the gospel that has the ability to change the human heart and which in turn unlocks the door to all of the other changes God wants and which we need in our lives. I'm going to leave it at that. You know, do with that message what you will. It was a tough message this morning. I know that. And I rarely point out groups, names, anything like that. I even avoided when I was talking about the guy trying to stay away from names. You know, because it's not the point. The point is this stuff's all around us. The name, I could name 10, 15. I used to do that. There's no point in it. You know, there's no point in it. But but here's my point to you. Know the genuine. Know the genuine of why we're here. Know the genuine of Jesus's message. When it comes to the world that we live in or when it comes to the gospel witness that we have and the message that we proclaim to people, you know, know what the genuine really is. Should we be concerned with sin? Absolutely. But my suggestion is be more concerned with it in your own life than you are in everyone else's, right? First. And then secondly, as the Lord leads. But remember this, you can berate people over the behaviors all you want, but nothing's changing until the heart changes. They might conform for a season, but it's not going to last if the heart is corrupt. The real question is, how do we get them to a place where they can hear the one who can change their heart? That's what we ultimately want to do. Is there a place to bring sin into the equation, a discussion of it? Absolutely there is. The scriptures are replete with it, and we should not exhort the scriptures. Why we go verse by verse through the scriptures here so we don't skip over and cherry-pick the stuff that's nice versus the stuff that's tough. It needs to be there, but I'd also argue to you when you look at the scriptures, in particular in the New Testament, the vast majority of the issues that deal with sin deal with sin in our lives as believers, not in the world of unbelievers. It deals with the life of the believer who has the changed heart. And that's a completely different issue. But even with you and me, one of the things I've learned over the years is outward conformity produces not a whole lot of fruit. Inward conformity changes everything. The Lord began changing, you know, even as a believer, has challenged me over the years. I was speaking with somebody this week, and, and we were talking about the whole concept of, of sin and even secret sins and things that, you know, uh, the Lord challenges us with, and he shared with me something he was dealing with and had felt he needed to let go of, and we talked about it a little bit, and the thing he was talking about isn't necessarily sin. But we came to the conclusion that once the Lord challenges you on that and says that's not for you, then the answer is failure to obey the Lord becomes sin. The issue is not, but it's the hard attitude that is. You know, I said that in terms of even when it comes to alcohol in my own years and years of drinking. You know, I never really got drunk, maybe once or twice in my lifetime. But the truth is the Lord came to me and said to me, I don't want you to do that. It's not helpful. It's not edifying. I don't want you to do that. And for me, the real challenge became, did that make my taking a drink a sin? No. What became a sin was the fact that I wasn't yielding to what the Lord had asked of me. There are clear sins in Scripture. There are things that are, are not. There are things that are not even addressed in Scripture that are not wrong. But they become wrong when we choose to ignore what the Lord is telling us. And that's important because that really gets to the crux of the matter. It's about our hearts. It was about our hearts before salvation. It continues to be about our hearts 
after salvation. And Jesus wants those who have given their hearts over to him. And he has changed our hearts. And now he says, continue to yield that new heart to me. And I'll show you how to put off and to put on. And what a wonderful experience it is. And we do get transformed more and more and more. Now, as far as, and I'll leave you with this, as far as the whole message on, you know, this, this kingdom being birthed in the, in the world, please do not walk away from here today saying, I don't think you should be involved in anything. That's not at all the message. You know, as the Lord leads you, be involved. We are light and darkness. That's clearly the message. But you know what? We're not there to change the world, but we are there to be an influence on people and to share the gospel with them. I spent 24 years in the army and there wasn't a day that went by that I realized that I was a witness to the people that I worked with. I wasn't there to change the army. I wasn't there to change the nation, but I most certainly wanted to be used of the Lord to change the hearts of those men and women around me that I served with if I could, as the Lord opened doors for me to do that. That's our call. And in that way, absolutely go, you know, and get involved. Go be part of organizations. Go out in the community and serve. Go out and be lights in darkness, but know what your primary mission is. And your primary mission is not to change this world. Jesus will take care of that when he returns. Your primary mission is to go and be a witness of the gospel to them and to make disciples of these people as they come to faith in Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.